Welcome to Focus on the Facts, everyone. Today we're exploring this period, and what were some of the big, like, revelations that you came across that really made your mouth drop open? <laughs> well, I mean, I was aware that uh, this is kind of a, something where the people, the, the politicians especially, I mean, FDR notably had said, you know, I learned that quote a long time ago, that nothing in politics happens by accident. If it happened, you can bet it was planned that way. And Benjamin Disraeli, the... Uh, British Prime Minister, of course, famously said the world is ruled by different personages than the public imagines behind the scenes. So I knew they were there; they were out there. Just found a lot more of them, but uh, lots and lots of things I discovered that even I didn't know when I was writing this book. Uh, one of the things I've been talking about a lot, for instance, is that uh, just when writing about the World War One era, I mean, I knew that there were uh, people that were thrown in prison for protesting World War One, like Eugene Debs, a great socialist. But I didn't know that uh, when you were just researching it, I found out that, you know, we've all heard that expression, uh, well, you have free speech, but you can't yell fire in a crowded theater. Well, I didn't know where that came from. And so I learned it myself that it, it came, this phrase originated, in the Supreme Court ruling during the World War One era uh, by Oliver Wendell Holmes, you know, one of these great so-called liberal heroes. It was a eugenicist in real life and obviously didn't support free speech because he made this ruling where he used that as an expression to uh, support Woodrow Wilson's right to throw protesters of World War I in prison. Now, clearly, nobody protesting World War I was shouting fire in a crowded theater. But people don't know that's where that expression came from. And that was the first time that our government uh, put, just stamped a huge asterisk next to the Bill of Rights. Because, and again, just use, everyone understands you can't, you literally can't, shouldn't be able to yell fire in a crowded theater it could cause death and pay the money. But in this case, he used a ridiculous example because he was talking about protesters of war. And I don't think very many people in the public know that. Uh, so that was the, the most um, revealing thing that I learned that even I didn't know. But, I mean, I, when I was studying, uh, just going over some of the old presidents, William Henry Harrison, the guy who uh, was the shortest uh, tenured president we've ever had, served like 32 days and famously caught pneumonia, while delivering the longest uh, inaugural address in history and died like 30 days later or something. But uh, he, is, he left a great quote on the record. I have it in the book, and I get it exactly right, but it's something like it. after his, well, he was 68 when he died, so he was pretty old for those days. And he said, uh, after a long career in politics, I've come to the conclusion that all of politics consists of uh, making the rich richer and the poor poor, something like that. So I thought that was kind of you know profound, but... Uh, the rest of the stuff that, I mean, I knew about Lincoln, you know, I, I knew the other side of Lincoln. Uh, studying it, of course, uh, it's uh, you know, hard to imagine some of the things that well, were done. Well, let's talk about that a little bit, because that's, uh, you know, that's the point at which I had reached in um, your book, which talks about, you know, I, as I'm reading this, I'm like, holy cow, this is the environment we are facing right now. Um, you know, I was, uh, for example, this, you provide a quote in here um, on v- Valanding. How do you say his name? Valanding. Yeah, Clement Valandigam, I think, yeah. Valandigam. Okay. So uh, he says in 1863, soon after the war began, the reign of mob was supplanted by the iron domination of iron arbitrary power. Constitutional limitation was broken down. Habeas corpus fell. We have that today. Liberty of the press, of speech, of the person, of the males, of travel, of one's own house, and, and of religion. I mean, we see under Loretta Lynch, we, you know, uh, or Obama, the habeas corpus was um, 
rescinded. Now we have uh, these, this um, deten- are not what is it indefinite detention where you're denied access to an attorney. Your family doesn't know that you you know where you even are. You are not charged. You, I mean. Um, we have constant spying, which was the male thing. Uh, we have people being restricted in their travel, their you know homes being taken from them and, and broken into by SWAT teams. Um, and then he goes on to talk about the right to bear arms, due process of law, judicial trial, trial by jury. I mean, he names all of the things um, uh, that we are we're facing today, and these were all under Abraham Lincoln. <laughs> and he declared. Yeah, well, that's, what, that's why it's, that's why it's so crucial. That's why I talk so much about him because uh, so much of the tyranny that we see today w- began under Abraham Lincoln. Abraham Lincoln was the 16th president of the United States. The 15 presidents before him, with the exception of James K. Polk, who was also, of course, rated highly. I mean, you'll notice when you look at what I call the court historians, when you look at how they rate these figures, invariably. They go for the most tyrannical ones, and they rate them the highest. So Abraham Lincoln, right. Wilson, um, Franklin Roosevelt, people like that are rated very highly. James Polk is, is rated high because he took the first step, the first baby steps, to uh, overstepping his uh, constitutional balance when he uh, waged a war with Mexico, which then Congressman Abraham Lincoln uh, rightfully objected to. But with the exception of him, the other 14 presidents before Abraham Lincoln did not, regardless of their political views, they understood their limitations under the Constitution. They did not try to overstep their authority. Abraham Lincoln just, he, he just smashed any concept of separation of powers. He did whatever he wanted. He didn't care. He tried to arrest the Supreme Justice, Chief Justice of the Supreme Court when he ruled, rightfully ruled his uh, suspension of the writ of habeas corpus to be unconstitutional. He shut down hundreds of newspapers. He threw thousands. We still don't know how many thousands of people he threw into makeshift prisons. Without right, charges. the 40,000 number I saw that uh, you provided in your book, I was just like, what? You know, I mean, yeah, they, don't, they, have, they have no idea. I mean, they, I mean, some of them, were, most of the time, their families didn't even know where they were. And I, I provide some examples in there where he, people were just being arrested by you know, the kind of stuff you could see in other eras. I mean, even today with the Russia, Russia, Russia stuff, where they just you know, they try to make some kind of absurd connection. I think one guy was arrested because he was... His kids were waving a flag with blackberry juice or something ridiculous. It made no right. sense, and somehow they connected that to the uh, to the Confederates, and uh, he went to prison. But uh, Lincoln set so many because of what he did, and he was allowed to get away with it. He set so many bad precedents. So the stuff you talked about, the you know the uh, uh, holding people at Guantanamo Bay, even torture things like that uh, during the Bush the W. Bush administration, they were still citing uh, Abraham Lincoln's precedents. Turn that, and of course, Franklin Roosevelt used the precedents to throw the Japanese, and, and as I wrote about in this book, the forgotten people that were thrown in um, concentration camps were German Americans and, and some Italian Americans. They didn't get any reparations, but he was he cited Lincoln's precedent because Lincoln did this, and uh, even the, of course Woodrow Wilson said throwing his uh, people like Eugene Debs, and they got the Supreme Court approval for it. So this kind of tyranny, because and because we have deified Lincoln, now the court historians have, and most people. I know I'm going against the grain, obviously, of American society, because Lincoln is the secular saint of our civilization, and I, I have a whole section in there. You know, when we when we celebrate Abraham Lincoln, what are we celebrating? I mean, this, but I think it says a lot about why America is at the state it's at. Right. And that is our hero. I mean, this is the secular saint, and he, the objective analysis of it shows that this guy was. I mean, there's so many things, even even the the con- conduct of our troops now, where you have somebody like. Uh, Chelsea Manning, who sits in prison 
for just exposing, or, or could go back to prison, for exposing the atrocious conduct of troops uh, in Afghanistan and Iraq, you know, playing soccer with severed heads and, you know, killing dogs for sport and raping and pillaging. All that began under the Union troops. Because uh, people like uh, General Sherman, who was a vicious war criminal, if such a thing ever existed, this guy and, you know, invented the whole concept of uh, total war and of uh, scorched earth policy. And, and the Union and I have tons of examples in the book of what they were doing. They were starving the uh, southern population, what was left, because you know, every, pretty much every male that wasn't, that wasn't uh, completely handicapped was fighting regardless of age. And they basically uh, ran through the women and children that were left, and they raped most of them, and they, they uh, pillaged, uh, they stole their crops, burned their crops, salted and uh, oiled the fields so that they couldn't uh, grow anything afterwards, left them outside to die in the winter, burned their houses down, uh, destroyed railroad. I mean... It's unbelievable what they did, and these were the good guys, and that's why I'm trying to point out is that when we celebrate this and, and we see the example, because of the example they set, and it was celebrated, then I talk about uh, the World War II era, the so-called greatest generation, we saw a lot of that contact, especially in the raping aspect, where right. the Allied troops raped so many women in Japan, in Germany and Japan, both in Japan, they had to actually open a brothel to try to to channel their, you know, their instincts out of it, so... But these are the good guys, and that's what I'm trying to point out is that, uh, you know, history is written by the victors. We're hearing one side of it, and, of course, when you uh, talk about you're trying to defend the, the Confederates and uh, the Nazis and the Japanese or whatever, then, of course, you're, you're called racist or anti-Semitic or whatever. I'm just, I'm just pointing out that, you know, this is we're hearing one side of it, and uh, we have nothing to be proud of. And uh, this book is just full of examples of uh, incidents that are documented. This is not anything I made up. It's all hiding out there in plain sight. Yeah, and a few of them um, that jumped out to me that, I mean, it's really like bang, bang, bang. It's it's must-read material for people. I think for most people, you need some sense of what is really happening in the world today in order to have the proper context for reading your book about these last 200 years or so. Um, But it's, I mean, for example, you write about how... um, Frank Key Howard, the grandson of Francis Scott Key, was arrested and imprisoned at, um, you know, the same place where his grandfather had written the Star Spangled Star Spangled Man. Yeah, I mean, how ironic is that? Yeah, I mean, the Fort yeah. Henry. And that's, how many Americans know that? I mean, this is, and this is what yeah. was going on. So every time we sing the Star Spangled Banner, it's like the grandson of the guy who wrote that was in prison in the very same fort. But I don't think many Americans know that, but it's... Uh, so, yeah, and you look at the NFL debate. You look at that, that ridiculous, you know, stand for the flag kind of, you know, national debate that's going on. It's, like, all such a farce. I mean, and then, and then you point out how Lincoln arrested nearly the entire legislature of Maryland. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, exactly. I mean, this is... Lincoln did so many things. Even I have a quote from one of the court historians. Again, I call them the court historians because they're... They're the gatekeepers of the past. And so, you know, when, I, when I'm posting and writing about current events or whatever, I, I'm referring to, you know, what Gerald Salente calls the prostitutes, you know, the, the, the mainstream journalists of today who lie and distort about current events. The, the court historians and the academics, they serve the same purpose with the past. And they, uh, they're the gatekeepers of the past, and so they lie and distort that. So they make people, most often, they make people like Abraham Lincoln into heroes. And, I draw a clear distinction in the book between the founding fathers, who I, I still revere, and uh, people like Thomas Jefferson. I think he's the greatest statesman we ever had. And most Americans, uh, I didn't know 
how you know Abraham Lincoln absolutely despised Thomas Jefferson, and with good reason, because Jefferson would have despised him. But most people put Lincoln with the Founding Fathers when, in fact, what happened was when Lincoln came and trampled all over, the, there were two main concepts that our war for independence was fought on. The reason we became a constitutional republic, the first and foremost, was that uh, we had the revolutionary concept of ev- people everywhere have a right to consent to those who govern them, the consent of the governed. Well, in 1860, the southern states that seceded from the Union clearly no longer consented. So once Lincoln trampled all over that and the, uh, the other six states joined, so you had 13 states that were fighting, uh, and he, we lost almost a million, I think the, the newest estimate is 800 and some thousand deaths of uh, people clearly after that the, the underlying message at the end was not that, that slaves were freed, but what, that was this voluntary. This union is not voluntary. And there is no more consent of the government. So people that talk about the consent of the government, you can't even really have the quotes from the Founding Fathers anymore because they're not relevant. They haven't been relevant since the 1860s. But people don't realize that. And uh, they don't realize how Lincoln, they, they, sometimes they call it the Second American Revolution. And in a way it was. But it was a revolution against the Founding Fathers that Lincoln waged, and uh, ever since then, for, you know, before the Civil War, we were known as the United States was, a, was referred to as a plural. After the Civil War, and still today, it's, it's a singular, the United States is. And that's very, uh, you know, re- revealing, because that shows what happened is they crushed the individual states' rights afterwards, and the idea of the uh, Union of the Founding Fathers was three separate and equal branches of the government with checks and balances, Lincoln destroyed that as well, because he became the first imperial presidency, and the judiciary under John Marshall, who was another revered figure to the court historians, had already destroyed that part of the checks and balances, because the judiciary took on way too much power early on, and the legislative branch, uh, especially during the Civil War, when the radical Republicans rubber-stamped everything Lincoln wanted to do, took a back seat, and we see that even today. When's the last time the Congress is... uh, uh, declared war, and they're supposed to declare war when we're in nonstop wars, but they just take a back seat, so we don't have three separate and equal branches. We have largely imperial presidencies, thanks to Lincoln. We have a judiciary that is completely out of control and has been legislating forever. I mean, we see that in all branches when, you know, Donald Trump, uh, well, on the rare occasions when he's tried to do something he promised to do, some federal court somewhere will overrule him. That, that's unconstitutional. No federal court has a right to do that, but nobody points it out. And it's, it's, it's just allowed to happen. And the media reports it both sides. Even Trump accepts it. Oh, well, you know, we have to get rid of this judge down there. Well, he, under the Constitution, you are the head of the executive branch. The only one that can overturn anything you do would be uh, the Supreme Court in a vote or a majority or two-thirds of Congress. That never happens. It's just some, some politicized judge that, that we see everywhere. And we see this... Um, divisiveness now. Obviously, the Founding Fathers would be appalled by it. I mean, they would, but the, uh, the arrest of Roger Stone and the, the railroading of him, and I'm connected to Roger Stone because he wrote the foreword to my uh, first book, Hidden History, to the paperback edition. So, you know, I, I have a vested interest because when people look that book up, they see Donald Jeffries with Roger Stone. So I don't think he's a criminal, but it brought to mind that pre-dawn raid with the SWAT team. That's what was, again, started during the Civil War. You mentioned Clement Valentigam, who was Lincoln's most... Uh, foremost critic of the North, he was a, I believe an Ohio congressman, uh, he was arrested in the middle of the night by troops, and that happened recently to Wolfgang Halbig, by the way, again, too. So we're seeing right. this kind of thing. I'm sorry, Blumenthal, there, there, 
same thing. SWAT team kicked in his door um, and arrested him, denied him access to an attorney, um, failed to charge him with anything, and thankfully someone else knew that, that he had been arrested and was able to get him out. I mean, this, I mean, none of the war criminals that are exposed by these whistleblowers and journalists are, are in prison. We saw the same thing with Glenn Greenwald. There was this, it's the same forces at work. And so that's what I'd like to talk about next because, you know, um, you're talking about what's happening with the judiciary uh, today and how that was corrupted so long ago. And um, you also tackle the issue of these secret societies, the Freemasons and others um, who clearly play a role in uh, what we're seeing um, with regard to these uh, usurpations and coups and, and ongoing uh, endless wars. And so, um, you know, w w you also point out, I mean, it's like the, the, I was also looking at a quote as you were talking um, about the Constitution was that uh, Patrick Henry, you point out, was a vocal opponent of the Constitution which uh, supplanted the original Articles of Confederations and that he refused to attend the um, 1787 Convention. And so um, you talk about the, the, the Constitution as something uh, to be, you know, uh, sustained, but at the same time, how do you reconcile that in the face of what uh, Patrick Henry was saying and was he foreseeing what we, we are now witnessing um, in real time today? Well, yeah, I think that somebody like Patrick Henry, Thomas, really any of the founding fathers outside of Alexander Hamilton, and it's no, it's no coincidence, I write about that a lot, that he's the one that they picked to decide to become a new black rapper on Broadway and make a hero out of, because he was the banker's favorite founding father. He was the father of the originator of debt. He's the one that got us into this debt-based disastrous system and, of course, wanted the central bank. He would have loved the Federal Reserve. That's what he wanted. And he would, if he was around today, he'd be, you know, he'd be at the Bilderberg meetings, he'd be on the CFR, he'd probably be going to Bohemian Grove. But none of the other founding fathers would be welcome anywhere in society, maybe Benjamin Franklin, but certainly not Jefferson, Patrick Henry. I mean, it just, if you just look at the quotes, and the quotes, you know, I became, uh, Patricia, as a little kid, I was excited by that uh, revolutionary era. That was always my favorite era of history. I used to read everything I could get my hands on, even as a little kid, about it. And I, I thrilled to the great quotes. And as a civil libertarian, you know, uh, Patrick Henry's quote, uh, which he got from Voltaire, that I may not uh, agree with what you say, but I'll defend the, my dying day, you're right to say it. That's one of my credos, and nobody believes that anymore. I, can't, I mean, literally, they can't teach that, just as they can't teach George Washington's uh, uh, farewell address, in, in, uh, in, which he, he, in which he warned he had becoming in, uh, involved in other nations' affairs, because it contradicts every foreign policy of my entire lifetime, if not the entire 20th century. So they can't, they, that's why I talk about Hollywood has never had a, a movie devoted to George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, any of the founding fathers, except Hamilton, of course, because they want to steer away from that era of history, unless it is the only reason the founding fathers are mentioned at all today in polite society, in our, in our crumbling uh, idiocracy, is to, to call them racist. And if, if Jefferson's talked about it all, it's not for his incredible accomplishments, and the brilliant, you know, timeless statements he left behind, first and foremost being the Declaration of Independence, it's to talk about Sally Hemings, to put her on an equal pedestal. It's, it's ridiculous. But, so you can't, and, and there's a reason for that, because if they talk about what they were actually doing, if they talk about their words, then uh, what are they talking about? Overthrowing tyranny. Again, about a people everywhere having right to consent to those who govern them. The right to bear arms, which I have a whole section in there, which is that clearly they, their, their own statements make it absolutely clear they weren't talking about any kind of militia. 
They were talking about individual right to bear arms. Free, free speech, of course, like Patrick Henry, that, you know, even if I disagree with you, I'm going to support what you have to say. Because the First Amendment means nothing if it doesn't protect the speech of those you disagree with, because we, we all can agree with people that are saying what we say. Who doesn't agree with that? So <laughs> right. the, the, the power of the First Amendment is that you have, to, you have to protect the right of those you disagree with, but nobody does that today. Most, especially on the left, they, they want to get people fired over things that offend them, and, and in the case of uh, more and more politicized prosecutions, like what, Roger Stone, they want to imprison them. That's basically what Roger Stone is going to jail for, if he goes to jail, is for a publicly denouncing the absurd Russiagate investigation. That's the so-called charge impeding an investigation, because he was impeding right. it by doubting it. And, uh, of course, any, anybody with a brain would doubt it. But uh, So that's, it's a very slippery slope, and it really, you know, we, for, I, you know, studying a lot of these figures, John Quincy Adams comes off really well in my book. Uh, he, he talked about Freemasons. He had left tons and tons of detailed statements about Freemasons on the record. He was a... Uh, a uh, very prominent member of the anti-Mason. There was an anti-Mason party. Most Americans probably don't know that. And he left another great comment about foreign policy when he said, uh, America does not go abroad in search of monsters to destroy. Well, that's all we've been doing my entire life, is going abroad and, and coming up with what H.L. Mencken called an endless series of hobgoblins. And the, the one now is, is probably Putin now. They're trying to construct him into a hobgoblin. And it's, people don't learn from history. Most of them don't know history. But I don't think we've ever had a situation like, and I've said this in many interviews, what we have today in America, where we have a framework for government. I still believe the constitutional framework, checks and balances, is the most perfect form of government that, that has ever been devised, and that can be devised, because it, it does try its best, if it's run properly, to see that no, not too much power is concentrated anywhere, because the essence of problem is power corrupts. Absolute power, person, would, absolutely. But, but you have the people today that are running things that swear allegiance to the Constitution. During this impeachment charade, you had you had uh, Democrats talking about the Constitution. One of them burst into flames. I mean, talking about the founding fathers who would all you know, would run from them in horror. They'd probably you know think they were witches or something. But they they would not even understand this at all. But they they we still it supposedly swear allegiance to this, and they don't pay the slightest attention to it. None of them believe in the in the in the Bill of Rights. Most of them don't believe in the Second Amendment, and not very few believe in any aspect of the First Amendment, the Fourth Amendment, any of them. I mean, our, our police are allowed to violate the Fourth Amendment with almost everything they do, and nobody cares. So I don't think there's ever been, I don't know what goes on in other countries, but I, they have some kind of constitution or some kind of apparatus they're supposed to go by. And I can't believe that any place exists or has ever existed where the leaders of a country just pay so little attention to what George W. Bush called a worthless piece of paper. And uh, that's the way they all treat it. And I, hopefully my book will uh, open some eyes out there that aren't aware of just how far we've gone astray and how, how different things are from what the Founding Fathers uh, envisioned when they uh, founded the country. Well, what I, um, in terms of the, the consistency, I think that's one of the areas where, you know, again, for, for people who are somewhat knowledgeable about the um, deceptions of today, to be able to read this um, body of work that you've put together here and see the parallels and, and how this is a systemic problem, not just a problem of individuals in the system. As you pointed out, these um, different branches have, you know, uh, the, the balance there is gone now. And um, one of these tactics that you also talk about is this, you know, smear campaign against those who dare 
exposed the corruption behind all of this. And, and you mentioned Thomas Jefferson. And, you know, I myself have often wondered about that and um, could not reconcile, you know, the, the conflicting information I was getting. And I was really fascinated to read that, in fact, um, DNA tests proved conclusively that Jefferson could not have been the father um, that of the child she bore at age 16. And uh, this also reminds me of the Julian Assange smear today, where, you know, the U.N. rapporteur on torture, Niels Meltzer himself, um, acknowledged that he had been duped by the smear campaign against Julian Assange, and only upon examining the evidence discovered that, in fact, there never were any rape charges ever actually filed against yeah. Julian Assange. But, you know, it's incredible to me, as I read your, um, your book, that these same tactics are at work, <laughs> you know, 150, 100 years later. It's just like, oh, wow, it, it was, it's Jim, Jim Garrison said, you know, during his investigation of the Kennedy assassination, he said, you know, he talked about the people that were covering the JFK assassination up, and he said, well, they, they have no reason to change their strategy. It's been very successful. And I think you right. can look at that in any of these areas. There, there's, I mean, it's been working for them for a very right. long time, it's basically since the Civil War. And I, th- I think I, I go back to that era so much because so much of what we, what we you know, we, when we go back to American history now, that's why that, that era, the founding of the Republic, and really the, the, the uh, 90 years or so leading up to the Civil War, after the founding, is ignored by uh, Hollywood, is ignored in the culture, Unless, again, they distort it completely, as in Hamilton, the absurd play, things like that that are obviously have no real history involved in it at all. It's just propaganda. But because they, they kind of start things from the Civil War, because that's when we started seeing the America that we see today, or the, the framework for it. We don't see the constitutional framework because that was shattered during the Civil War. And it, we never got that back, and uh, we never have. And that's why, you know, when I was a, a little kid growing up in the, in the 60s and the 70s, there was still, in Virginia, there were still a lot of what they called unreconstructed Southerners running around with Confederate flags and everything, because that, that, was, that instinct was still there, because they realized the lost cause and everything, that, that, that they, had, they realized what had happened there and what the damn Yankees had done. And uh, we, we are still living under that yoke because, because and not that the right, right side won, because, you know, of course, people you know, invariably tell you when you do that, okay, well, I guess you support slavery. And I say, look... Of course, I'm the only one. I'm the only person out there. I think talking about the 40 million slaves in the world today, including 10 million in India, that none of you apparently care about. <laughs> you don't talk about it. Where's the embargo against India? So it's not slavery you oppose. It's uh, it's you just want to keep harking back to this error, and that's why when uh, if the Civil War is analyzed at all, it's to talk about slavery and to look at it through the prism of today. And that's what we today the historians as such that exist or any discussion of historical things is through the prism of today. So, you know, it's, it's to the point now where we may start seeing uh, complaints about why uh, there weren't any transgender figures in the 1830s. I mean, that's, that's where we're at. And, and, that, and we, look, we look at it through the, tra- the, the prism of today, and obviously it was a completely different world. And, and by our standards today, or the standards of the majority today, virtually every white person alive in the 1860s, let alone the 1770s, would be the most racist person in America today. That's just the way it was. 
But uh, the lessons of history are not learned. And after, because of the way the slaves were freed, it's Ron Paul who wrote the foreword to my book. I'm very, very honored to, to have someone that, uh, that I admire so much do that. As he said, you know, this, that led, because of the Reconstruction era, which I also analyzed the book, which no one talks about anymore, the military occupation of the South, um, things like the KKK were born, uh, 100 years, really, as Ron Paul said, 100 years of bad race relations. That's when the real racism began, the Jim Crow laws, uh, the lynchings, and all, all that. The KKK, because of the way the war was fought, the way it ended, and the kind of punitive measures they put on the, the very proud Southerners that were left. And it, was, it just left a bad taste. And again, it set a precedent because after the war, they hung, for instance, they hung Commander Wirtz of the Andersonville prison in, in uh, Georgia. And I point out that you know, here you had the northern troops were robbing and pillaging and burning the crops so that most of the southern civilians couldn't, didn't have food to eat. So how were the people running the southern prisons supposed to feed the northern prisoners? But again, they don't tell you this, that, that the southern authorities were desperately trying to first they tried to trade prisoners with the north because they said we can't feed them this is inhumane they cared about humanity apparently the north didn't and they refused that and then they got to the point where they tried to just simply release them on their own and the northern troops round them up and put them back in the southern prisons i mean just do you are you learning that in history anywhere of course not so who were the good guys and then they hung this guy commander words who by all uh accounts was a decent guy who was doing his best in a bad situation and because of that precedent that's what directly led to what we saw first in the Treaty of Versailles, which led to World War most, Again, most Americans don't know that. After World War I, we invented the... First of all, we hung that commander and had the reconstruction of the South, which put a defeated foe under subjugation. You know, in the previous history of warfare, when it was over and you signed a treaty, that was it. And, you know, certainly the, the, the American colonies didn't try to do anything to the British after the, the Revolutionary War. But after World War I, we, we came up with this onerous Treaty of Versailles, which uh, imposed financial penalties on Germany primarily, the losers. And most people don't realize, I, I published my book, people are always astounded by this, Germany did not stop paying reparations from World War I until the year 2010. So that's how stringent they were. So, of course, the Germans were devastated. Our, our depression that we had here in America was a walk in the park compared to what was going on in Germany. And that's why Hitler was, uh, it was uh, and of course Hitler had lots of mysterious powers behind him. You read the book Wall Street and the Rise of Hitler, just like Wall Street and the Bolshevik Revolution. I show you these forces, these people largely come, don't come from, you know, just out of nowhere. They have powerful horses behind them, but he, what he was saying was welcomed by a, a German population that had been beaten down, and uh, it led directly to World War II because he, he started, uh, you know, getting the people together and building up an army and so forth. But if it hadn't been that reparation, eliminated usury. He eliminated yeah. the bankers. This, that, you know, we see that with Gaddafi. I mean, these are all the same patterns that repeat, you know. And as you point out, like with the domination of the South, you know, this was, you know, a brutal um, annexation of uh, land and people that did not want to be ruled by, you know, the uh, hostile actors. And um, no one... And, and again, there was there were banker interests behind that. And so my question to you, as you were talking about this and how we've been at war, I mean, and, and the conditions under which the Southerners were forced to live, um, it, it, you know, we see this, this theme also of the uh, intentional division of these communities and peoples and nations in order, with the goal not being to necessarily... Um, control, 
it's, it's a controlled chaos. The idea is to get everyone agitated just enough and fighting with each other to make it more easy, to, easier to manipulate them. And, um, you know, what you described about the South seems to me, you know, these same imperialist practices uh, at work that, you know, have been used by different um, empires, but to the same end, where it's just, you know, the, these military occupations and the complete subjugation, and then how these groups like the KKK arise out of sheer, um, you know, stress from desperation, yeah, and and, and, the, and these yeah. things, and there's a, you can see how these things evolve. Where we had Reconstruction after Civil War, which was unprecedented. You had uh, after World War One, you had uh, reparations, penalties, financial penalties, owners' financial penalties imposed on the losers in a war. Again, nobody had ever basically. <laughs> Sued or what? I don't know what you would call it. Just imposed penalties on on, on a defeated opponent. Again, that's just not. You can't find that in the history of warfare. And then they took the final step. Uh, hopefully, the final. I don't know what else they can come up with after World War II. And I, I believe I'm the first writer to write critically about the Nuremberg trials, uh, probably in 60 years, if not more. And uh, I think it was the antithesis of justice. But it was the next step where it, it said, okay, well, first of all, we've imposed financial penalties. Now we're going to legally try. Those that we defeated in war, as, as uh, Robert Taft, uh, you know, said that uh, you know this is uh, this is unprecedented. You can't. You know, this is the victors trying the vanquished. Nobody had ever thought to do that before. But again, we're, we're so lost as a society, Patricia, that everybody. But you can't find anybody but me. I know I'm a lone voice in the wilderness in this. That nobody on the left or right is is looking at this and saying, "Wow, that was." That was awful, especially the way it was done. Because if you read the way Rudolf Hess, who was uh, sentenced to this incredibly uh, cruel and unusual punishment in Spandau Prison, where he's the only prisoner for decades until they probably killed him at 90-some years old and claimed he killed himself. But he was, you read about his, uh, his imprisonment, and he was not uh, you know, a Nazi leader engineering the Holocaust or anything. This guy was a, a genuine uh, peace guy who tried to fly a solo mission to Britain to end, uh, against Hitler's wishes and uh, was captured and was just considered uh, one of the worst Nazi war criminals, which makes no sense. Uh, others, of course, were, were executed as well, but then you had uh, several Nazis brought in under Operation uh, Paperclip uh, that uh, helped with our intelligence services, and people like Werner, Werner von Braun, who uh, built NASA's program. So it, it, it made no sense, and of course, where were the Japanese people? The Japanese war criminals, uh, they, weren't, they didn't go to trial, and in fact, I think the Emperor Hirohito lived, I think, until the 80s or something. So people don't ask these questions until I started doing it. Where, uh, and at the time, I point out, I have the books. How many people know that uh, John F. Kennedy, you know, a great liberal hero of mine, classical liberal, uh, his great book, uh, Profiles in Courage, which everybody still kind of nods in appreciation of yet, well, one of the chapters was, uh, was about uh, Senator Robert Taft and his opposition to the Nuremberg trials. Now, I don't think one in a billion people in the world know that. Because that goes against the grain. Wait, JFK was, and JFK left quotes on the record, like many liberals did at the time, that this is this is horrible, this is horrific. You can't try the the losers in a war in court, but we did, and uh, now you know people celebrate it. And, and actually, one of JFK's other chapters was devoted to uh, I don't have the guy's name in front of me at this time, but uh, it's in the book where the, the senator who cast the deciding vote in the impeachment trial of Andrew Johnson and. In that case, Andrew Johnson was basically impeached because he was opposing Reconstruction, or at least the onerous Reconstruction. So JFK was, you know, showing and saying that, hey, this, this, this is my idea of courage. This is one guy that opposed, you know, that basically was sympathetic towards somebody who opposed Reconstruction, and another one who was uh, 
critical of the Nuremberg trials, but people don't, you don't have anyone mentioning that. So I think that's what I think, I, when I get feedback on my work, I hear from people who didn't know these things or say, wow, I've never heard anybody else say that before. But that's what fascinates me is those kind of tidbits and how we can see today, because we let these things happen, these kind of things when we, uh, when you have the, the political prosecutions of people like Stone and uh, um, maybe Alex Jones down the road, that kind of thing, because we allow these kind of politicized things to happen, and our courts are so politicized now that basically if, if you walk in any courtroom and you're, if it's some kind of charge that relates to politics or personal opinions, you're, you're at the mercy of who, who appointed that judge. So when yeah. Roger Stone walked in that courtroom and Amy Berman Jackson was a, an Obama appointee, and she, I'm sure she was mortified by every, any, every of his, bit of his political conviction. So what chance of justice did he, because these, these judges can't. Theoretically, we shouldn't know any judge's political persuasion, just as we shouldn't know any journalist's political persuasion. But you, know, you turn on a television network, is there any, within two minutes, you can determine pretty much every who every journalist voted for, whether they're uh, you know a so-called liberal or so-called conservative. So we're we're just completely lost, and uh, unfortunately, I'm probably writing history books at the wrong time because uh, Americans I, I are largely historically illiterate, and I know I'm writing for a limited audience, but I'm I'm hoping that uh, the more people read it, they'll turn others on to it, and word of mouth will pass, and people will start realizing that. Uh, the past is prologue, like Shakespeare said. And, you know, if you don't learn from the past, you're condemned to repeat it, like Santayama says. We, so we need to understand that what's happening today has a uh, direct correlation to the past, and it's because of all these things. It's like a long mathematical equation. You know, when you see in those movies, they're writing on the glass thing, and they have, like, you know, tons and tons of numbers. I don't really understand, but if any one of those numbers is wrong, the answer can't be right. So uh, all these things I'm talking about, uh, these are wrong numbers. So clearly we can never, you know, get any kind of uh, correct answers. Until we correct that, those things, and uh, we, we can't hope, we can't get rid of the corruption, which is, that's what I write about. I, everything I write about is trying to expose corruption, and I believe that we're an utterly corrupt society, but I think we have been for a long time, and it's because of these kinds of things that happened, and the majority of Americans uh, put up with it, they accepted it, and at this point, unfortunately, probably a majority support it. At one point, I think you even quote, was it Thomas Jefferson who said that those uh, who don't read newspapers are better informed than those who don't? And, you know, interestingly, a modern-day um, corollary would be, uh, you know, when I was watching the, attempt, the violent coup in Bolivia, um, where the people of the Altiplanos, knew exactly what was going on, yet your average American, you know, when it was the U.S. that actually paid for and sponsored and trained and bribed all of the bad actors in the coup, um, Americans had no idea, no idea what was going on. It's amazing. They're not uninformed. They're, they're horribly misinformed, which I think is even worse. And I think the point that Jefferson was sort of getting at and um, as you point out, you know, most people have no idea about any of this. We have, we have truly been fed a complete inversion of the truth. And <clears throat> where my own experience, I mean, this is something obviously you've been at this many years and have been seeing the, the truth of what's going on for many years. I, on the other hand, am somewhat new to it. I mean, I, in my work, I witnessed the weaponization, for example, of the SEC and how hedge fund managers 
very cleverly hired firms to plant, you know, fake stories in order to hurt their competition or they'd uh, persuade an SEC official to open an investigation without there ever being an investigation, but just the mere act of having that investigation open cripples a public company in many different ways. So it is um, an unfair advantage, but it, it goes on all the time. But And, and so, you know, at, on the political side, this is all new to me, and, and the, the mere idea of inversion that we've seen. Though I will say... Um, to your, when you pointed out that, you know, Americans are still pretty ignorant, you know, I, I would, I can't um, argue with you on that, except to the extent that it seems to me in the three years that I've been at this full time, trying to understand what's going on and sharing information and building a research group, that we're, we're on the, you know, now at the point where people are confronting the truth about the Holocaust. And when I think back to three years ago, and most people had no idea what was even going on in Palestine today, um, much less any of these other countries, and that now we're at the point where we can confront the lies around the Holocaust, which is sort of like, you know, the untouchable subject. <laughs> people are in prison in Germany for even, you know, look at uh, Ursula Haverbeck, um, is a 90-something-year-old woman in prison today for daring to question the historical facts around, and, and we're around now the closer Holocaust. to that here because, and it's you know it's like I and I, I purposely didn't really mention the Holocaust in my book even though I talked about it. I, I preferred to go and discuss Allied war atrocities to try to show again that we don't because I don't think and I think what happens is something like the Holocaust I'm very familiar with that and I, I like I doubt I doubt the the truth of that almost anything that has been reported to us so I think especially the World War Two era. You know, and that's why I wanted to write about the bombing of Dresden and all the, all the horrible things that, that allies of the rapes, the mass rapes that they occurred, just to show that they're, you know, history is written by the victors. And that doesn't mean, unfortunately for a lot of people, means then you like Hitler and they were the good guys. I, I don't think anybody knows in these productions if there are good or bad guys, but we're getting one side of it. And certainly the Holocaust has been so, uh, has become such a big industry. And I've said many times, I mean, you should be able to dispute any historical event without having go. It doesn't matter. Again, I, as a civil libertarian, I don't care whether you're wrong or right. I mean, you, I mean, whether it's the moon landing, the earth is flat, or the Holocaust, or anything, no matter how controversial it is, you ought to have the right to do that, and you certainly shouldn't be thrown into prison for it. But unfortunately, around the world, even places like Canada, who compares pretty favorably to our society in many aspects now, um, has a law like that, right? Ernst Sundell, if you remember went to prison there, and uh, so it's, it's, it's just a horrible time. It's, it's, it's a, it's a, but you're right, I think, about there are more people, there are more people that are waking up, definitely. The problem is the people that are asleep are more asleep than ever, and they're right. getting their heels in, and that's why they're coming up with these, uh, you know, wanting to basically, you know, with hate crime laws and hate speech and all this nonsense, and I, you, know, you can't have free speech if there's such a thing as hate speech. It, again, it, does, it contradicts the First Amendment, but so many people use that. Every time I see somebody use that term, I try to say, tell them that, but they just don't get what a slippery slope it is. And it all leads to that same end, that, you know, what you're saying is, uh, whether, what, no matter what it is, that, you know, you, you've gone beyond the pale here. I believe in free speech, but, and it comes, you know, comes to the Olive Oil Holmes thing. That's why it was so right. dangerous to, to accept that. You know, there is no, there's no, you can't put an asterisk on it. There's no free speech except for that's going too far. No, because it's not free speech then. You already have laws against, uh, 
you know, terror, you know, threats against people or whatever, inciting violence. So there's other laws in the books that cause that. But free speech is free speech, and you ought to be able to to say uh, say and, and, and write whatever you want. If not, the First Amendment doesn't mean anything. But that's I'm, I'm trying to, and we're seeing that today with the Internet, where um, shows like this, and the Little Shall I Do Weekly, and, and lots of other great podcasts out there, that's where you get the people are getting the alternative information, and unfortunately, people, YouTube especially is cracking down on these things so much. And when when we can just sit by and people accept, I tried to write about that on social media when that awful CEO of YouTube—I uh, can't remember her name—but they bragged in the interview with Leslie Stahl, who is a typical old line journalist who <laughs> has never investigated anything in her life, uh, you know, wouldn't know a story you know, if it bit her in the ass. But she's. Uh, she just kind of sits there and smiles and nods, and the, the CEO brags about, you know, we've eliminated 70% of controversial, in other words, truthful or alternative material right. from, from right. YouTube. And it's very dangerous, and we have to, because this is, this is it, because if, if the FCC gets on the Internet, then, or something like the FCC, then uh, we won't be having this conversation. Because, you know, we can't go on television now, on any of the television networks or because of the FCC. I mean, I, I've been on radio talk shows, but most of them are Internet-based. I've been on a few, I guess, AM radios and coast-to-coast -coast AM. I've been on many times. But for the most part, that stuff is really censored. And uh, they know they have certain parameters. So you, know, you can get on and you can discuss the conservative-liberal paradigm, but you can't get it. You start talking about what I'm talking about in this book, the meat and potatoes, you know, that Lincoln was a tyrant or that the Nuremberg trials were the antithesis of justice, you know, the, the most controversial things in my book, you're not going to, I'm not going to find any platform for that outside the Internet. So we have to try to keep this free. Uh, but unfortunately, again, they're, they're making headroads. And I mentioned Alex Jones earlier when, when they took him down. That was like a Lexington and Concord moment where uh, you can see things unraveling since then. And unfortunately, he, he had a lot to do with it because he allowed himself to be taken down when he did his stupid apologies and, uh, started running away from people that he should have been helping and, uh, you know, started jumping on this neoconservative nonsense where he became, you know, basically a Fox News light. But he was the biggest name, and once they took him down, they became empowered, and there are lots of other people that, uh, that they've taken down. So we have to hope they don't come after us and, and that we have this platform. But it, more people that, that go to, to shows like this and uh, support it, then, then uh, you know, that's, that's the way you can help. But uh, other than that, I don't know when we can reach a critical mass, but it has to be a point where we have a majority of people that are awake, and I don't think we have a majority of people Americans awake, even though there are, there's increased interest in young people especially are getting it. But uh, we, we still need, and of course, the people that are awake, too, they're awake in different ways. Because with Trump, right. his personality has divided him, so there aren't people awake to the disparity of wealth and things like that, that, cap that this brand of capitalism is failing most people. And there are the other people that are awake to, uh, you know, the kind of uh, New World Order type of conspiracies. But they don't come together. There's not much of a crossover because of Trump. And so that's why I think Trump was selected, because he has, he has divided people. I've lost so many friends that I lost people that wrote glowing reviews to my first book, Hidden History, uh, because I initially supported Trump. And they just can't handle it. And it's sad. But uh, whether we can come together, I don't know. But right now the people are really, really... Uh, divided, and, and I just, I just sit there and shake my head when I see them arguing over the, the stupid, you know, Kardashian type things they argue about. But uh, it's hard to, to get them focused on, real like meat and potatoes history, like I'm writing about when they're just so distracted on such uh, stupid stuff. True, it is, 
there was one other story, but we're almost out of time, but I wanted to um, mention you go into Benjamin Franklin and his uh, ties to um, masonry and the possi- and the, the discovery of those bones underneath his residence. Um, yeah. I, you know, what I, it made me think of um, Ronald Bernard. I don't know if you're familiar with him. He's a uh, former banker, international banker, and he um, talked about how among these, these people, this cadre that he worked with that included, you know, foreign leaders and uh, other powerful individuals that, in fact, you know, uh, human sacrifice was um, not only practiced but required, you know, to, as part of these secret societies, you had to compromise yourself in such a way as to make it possible that you could be manipulated. And um, I, I love how you say that, you know, nobody thinks that, you know, he could have possibly, you know, killed these people despite the fact he was living there. <laughs> no, he didn't do it. And that's the thing is the way they responded to it is that and this is the way, this is what invariably happens. They'll trot out an academic, they'll trot out a court historian to explain away something. Now, this, these have been bones found in Thomas Jefferson's home, Patrick Henry maybe, uh, then it would have been a whole different uh, critical examination of it. Because, well, you know, you know, Jefferson was having, you know, he was raping Sally Hemings, so you know, who knows, right. these were slave. But, I mean, there would have been a whole different aspect of it. But Benjamin Franklin is the second most protected founding father behind Alexander Hamilton. He, he's a great man in many ways. And I, I quote his wonderful, timeless quote, there's no such thing as a good war or a bad peace many times. But he was, as you note, he was a member of the Hellfire Club, which was a really uh, blasphemous uh, Oscar, they 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 had uh, they held very apparently sex and magic rituals far below the uh, it was an old um, a monk abbey, and uh, and they had apparently they had uh, prostitutes that would dress up as nuns. I mean, you, know, you had to you had to have a really particular bent mind, especially talking about the 1700s, to come up with something like that. And one of their credos that they uh, they were the first ones that uh, we know of. They came up with that expression, that anti-Christian expression, do what that wilt, do what thou wilt, which Aleister Crowley, of course, uh, the, exactly. the great beast, exactly. that was his personal motto, but it, uh, apparently they said it a couple hundred years first before him, but uh, very, you know, he had, he had a lot of very um, troubling aspects to his character, as opposed to a lot of the founding fathers, although undeniably brilliant, but uh, yeah, the, the, the skeleton, the bones, the human bones found, typically that ought to bring anybody under scrutiny or suspicion if you're if you're suddenly right. found, I mean, how many how many houses they have, have human bones you know 30 some skeletons or whatever it was i don't know if they because right. it wasn't wasn't updated i tried finding updated stories about it and they it kind of dropped it like a lot of these stories get dropped and there are no updates right. on it but it, so they think i guess they they explain it at the time and americans have a very short attention span and uh the things i write about typically i'll have readers say hidden history or this book uh We'll say, "Wow, I'd forgotten about that." Or, "Yeah, I remember that because you know, we we do we forget these things." And there's so many conspiratorial right. that, things. That's the thing. That... Yes, I I think you know that's the one the one message that you know I try and drive home um, to people who are, really want to try and get involved and make a change is that repetition of this information frequently is absolutely required. I mean, this is a learning process. People are, you know, we're, we're having to relearn all of this and um, the same methods that were used 
to drill the, you know, false narratives into our brains are the ones we need to employ in order to digest properly this, um, the, the real history. I was reminded as I was reading what you were, what you wrote about Benjamin Franklin, I had read two histories, um, founding mothers and ladies of liberty by, uh, also the court historian, Cokie Roberts. <laughs> and she <laughs> yeah, actually, she's a court historian. <laughs> Yes, but she did reveal a little bit of truth about Franklin in that she pointed out as you, his wife, I think Deborah, was left. He left her to manage their farm, and the only time she ever heard from him, which would be, you know, sometimes years that she wouldn't yeah. hear from him, he'd, he'd want money. She was there yeah. running the farm to support him while he was, yeah. you know, off trying and to having uh, countless money. affairs. I mean, I guess the 1700s, he was like a libertine, and... Uh, he certainly didn't look the part, but uh, you know, somehow he was a stud in Paris. I don't, I don't get it. But, but well, you know, I, 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 that was, I found that fascinating. He, he's apparently his pickup line that he used to use was he'd come up to girls and say, "Would you like to pursue? The, would you like come per, to uh, join me in the pursuit of happiness?" Oh, <laughs> I just, just picture that. Who would ever think that? But uh, you know, who knows how many other stories there are like that uh, that are hidden from history. <laughs> All righty. Well, um, tell us what your where people can find you, Donald, and what you're up to um, right now, so that people can follow your work. Well, uh, my blog is donaldjeffries.wordpress.com. Keeping it real, it gets lots of uh, followers and attention, uh, so you can find my you know pretty much uh, regular rants and ravings on there, and I write about things and promote things there. And uh, the book that we're discussing today is Crimes and Cover-Ups in American Politics, 1776-1963. The History They Didn't Teach You in School has a forward by Ron Paul. Uh, that's relatively new still, but I have a brand-new book that just came out a couple days ago, and that's a whole different subject. Uh, but it's, I, I write about social issues as well. It's called Bullyocracy, How the Social Hierarchy Enables Bullies to Rule Schools, Workplaces, and Society at Large. has uh, blurbs from people like Jesse Ventura. Um, all different subject, but it's you know everything I write about, whether it's survival of the richest, which is a, a book about the economy. I mean, I, I try to I, I focus a lot on the conspiracy stuff, which I have two books on that. But um, I also write about economic issues, and in this case, social issues, because I think there's a, there's corruption everywhere. And I you know everything I do, I'm trying to I'm kind of the last of the do-gooders, you know, I'm trying to expose wrongdoing and uh, get people to realize it's there because we're never going to get any better as a society until, you know, we basically need a huge vacuum cleaner. We need to vacuum out the people that are, that are destroying this country at all levels, and it's basically that we have the wrong people in charge, and we could just, you know, just inject honest people at all levels, and you would have, I mean, the only reason that my kind of history books are, are, uh, are able to be written is because uh, court historians and professional so-called journalists don't do their job, and they don't report the truth. They, they hide this information, or they distort it, and uh, that shouldn't happen if we had honest people ruling us. So um, I'm easy to find. You can you can Google me and find lots of other my interviews, and uh, you know you can find I'm I'm very active on social media. So I, I have a pretty big online presence. Great. Well, thank you so much, Donald Jeffries. We'll see you back here next me. week, everyone. Have a great afternoon. <laughs>